Good morning, and please open your Bibles to Acts chapter 27. Today we are going to see Paul on his way to Rome, surviving a deadly storm. We're going to see that no matter what problems come our way, our hope remains because we rest in the promises of God. Our hope in Christ remains because God's promises remain. When you think about Paul, you, you know that he was a survivor. He was a hope-filled survivor. He survived a lot of things. He endured death threats, assassination attempts, severe beatings, false accusations, imprisonment, and as we shall see in the last two chapters in the book of Acts, storms, shipwrecks, and snake bites. He was a real Indiana Jones, Jason Bourne, John Wayne kind of guy, I guess. He was a follower of Jesus. He was a leader of a movement, and he was uniquely gifted and fitted by God and enabled by God to do what he did in his time of need. And he was marked by hope, hope in Christ, an anchor for his soul. The question I want to explore today is why does your hope in Christ remain no matter what storms come your way? So please stand with me. I'm going to read Acts chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. The answer is going to be really clear as we look through this passage. And I've really been looking forward to this. I hope you are too. Uh, God's word is powerful. God's word changes our lives. God's word is inerrant. It is inspired. It is an infallible. And God, when we open up his word, gives us huge doses of biblical truth, of, of gospel truth. And he's going to do the same today as we look at a storm. So Acts 27, beginning at verse 1. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some of the prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramidium, which was to sail to ports along the coast of Asia, we put to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lycia. Since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous, because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and the ship, but also of our lives." But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there, on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete, close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the northeaster struck down from the land. 
And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men. For I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. And Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would have your way in our hearts and our lives In our assembly today, we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things in your word. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. So Luke records this violent voyage, not as someone who heard about it from Paul, but he was there. This is one of those we sections in the book of Acts. We, and he was there. He was an eyewitness. He was a passenger on board a ship destined to be wrecked. And this narrative of storm and shipwreck is a classic. It's one of the most graphic descriptions in the Bible. And Luke is seeing it through Greek eyes. Tells us what he saw in unforgettable word pictures. Those days there was a tradition of describing Uh, Sea storms and shipwrecks from Homer's Homer's Odyssey onward. Any story of a Mediterranean voyage at sea had to have a storm and a shipwreck. We've got both. And this really happened. And Luke was there. You know, life is often compared to a voyage across a stormy sea. It's not surprising that when people read this passage and then they preach it, they often jump straight to allegory and, and they start spiritualizing things, and they don't take the text as it stands. And it's not a good idea to bypass, bypass the actual events and start just spiritualizing things. We need to take the biblical text in context. And so there, there's obviously some spiritual lessons we're going to learn here, but we're first going to take the narrative at face value. It is a record of a real voyage at sea. I don't think Luke had allegory in mind when he was telling this story. He was remembering a harrowing, terrifying event in Paul's life and his. Paul, the prisoner in Roman custody, is on his way to preach the gospel in Rome. Now we saw last time in Acts chapter 26 that Paul had opportunity to testify to King Agrippa 
of the gospel of the grace of God in Christ. He gave his testimony. He recounted his conversion. Agrippa refused to repent and believe. And before that, he had appealed to Caesar. And after speaking to Agrippa, day after day after day, and, and Agrippa comes to this conclusion, you know, Paul could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. But it wasn't as if God had said, wow, Paul appealed to Caesar, now we're in a bind. Hmm, since he's going to Rome anyway, let's have him preach the gospel. No, this was in the mind of God from, from, from way back, and he had, he had orchestrated this, he had ordained this in his sovereign choice, and Paul was on his way to Rome on God's business. He has come through arrest and imprisonment in Jerusalem. We see this in chapters, one through tw- uh, chapters 21 to 23. Imprisonment and trials in Caesarea, chapters 24 to 26. And now he's being transferred to Rome, and he's ultimately get to Rome. And we'll see that in the last two chapters in the book of Acts. Today we're looking at the first half of chapter 27, and he's closing in on the center of the Roman Empire. It's a dramatic retelling of a sea voyage, and it, it links Caesarea and Jerusalem and Rome all together. We've got a map I want you to be able to see where you can actually trace the voyage. There's a lot of ports and a lot of places, and there's a lot of details. We're immersed in details in this passage. There's cargoes and harbors and wind directions and sails and dinghies and anchors and a nightmare storm and ultimately a shipwreck. Geographical movement is something Jesus intends for his witnesses. You need to look no further than Acts 1-8 for that. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was that. This was going to the ends of the earth. But there is also a sense of homecoming as Paul is heading to Rome from a Roman perspective. Rome was not the ends of the earth in those days. Rome was the center of the earth. The epicenter from which all roads radiated out. And so it's sort of a homecoming perspective as he heads there. The passage records a a treacherous sea journey. uh, First from Caesarea to Crete, verses 1 through 12. And secondly from Crete to Malta, verses 13 to 26. It's a perilous voyage. I'm highlighting God's power in the midst of natural and human danger and his faithfulness in fulfilling his promises. This is why the point here is that no matter what problems come your way, in Christ your hope remains because you rest in the promises of God. So let's look at the first 12 verses first, from Caesarea to Crete. Verse 1 says that it was decided that we, there's Luke, he was there, should, they should sail for Italy. And they deliver Paul and some of the other prisoners to the centurion named Julius. They get on this ship of Andromedium, and they're going to sail to different ports along the coast. So they put out to sea, and they're accompanied by Aristarchus. He's a key figure in Paul's life at this point. He's a Macedonian from Thessalonica. He first appeared in Acts when he was seized by rioters in Ephesus, Acts chapter 19. He accompanied Paul to Jerusalem with the gift for the Gentile Christians in Acts chapter 20. He later ministered to Paul during his Roman imprisonment. We see that in Colossians 4.10. It is said of Aristarchus that like Paul, he suffered martyrdom under Nero. Whatever the case, here's a man who is willing to put himself in harm's way for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. Verse 3 tells us the next day they land in Sidon, 
Luke describes the Sidonese church members as Paul's friends. The church was likely founded by Christians fleeing from Jerusalem after uh, Stephen was martyred, recorded in Acts 8. But they showed a lot of love and kindness to Paul. He was able to get help from his friends. Julius is a man of integrity, like other centurions we see in the New Testament, such as Cornelius, Acts chapter 10. He treats Paul kindly. There's some pagan hospitality there. And he lets him go to his friends for care, and so they give him kindness and love and care and probably some provisions for the journey. He has a caring team of people. I hope you have that kind of group in your life. I hope you have people in your life that when you're in a time of need, there would be people that would come alongside. Caring friends, friends in Christ, your small group, the Bible class, your home group, people that are close to you, people that know you, people that care, people that love. And Julius treats him kindly, lets him go to his friends for care, and then they put out to sea again. Verse 4, and they sail under the lee of Cyprus. The lee is the the, the wind-sheltered side of the island, and so they're, they're getting a bit of a break from the wind. The wind is contrary to them, and they would have been in a small coastal vessel, a wooden ve- vessel, uh, and they're going to try to stay as close to the shore as possible. Verse 5 tells us they sail now across the open sea by the coast of Cilicia, where Paul was originally from. He traveled a lot in that area during his journeys. Uh, they go to Myra and Lycia, uh, chief port with the, for, for the imperial grain fleet. Uh, the ships sail between Egypt and Rome. And verse 6 tells us that Julian, Julius, this kind centurion, finds another ship to get on, a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy, puts them on board that ship. This would have been a grain ship. Egypt was the chief granary of Rome. Uh, the trade between Egypt and Rome was very important. And so they're on this probably heavily laden grain ship has ballast down below rock ballast down below and lots of grain in the hold and they sail slowly for a number of days verse 7 and they arrive with difficulty to tinnitus because the wind is not allowing them to go further so they're basically stopped in their voyage at this point but then they kind of sail uh, carefully under the shelter of crete off salmon and they're going with difficulty verse 8 but they come to a place called fair havens Everybody wants to go to a place called Fair Havens. We got a street right here called Fair Haven. You go to Fair Haven, you're like, this is it. This is nice. Weary from fighting the weather, they enter the bay of Fair Havens. And it says in verse 9 that a lot of time passed. The ship is delayed for a long time. They're not going anywhere. They're waiting for a change in wind. The voyage is now dangerous. After mid-September, it was risky. After December 11th, it was dangerous. It says that the fast was over. That's the Day of Atonement. In AD 59, the Day of Atonement was on October 5th. What Luke is indicating to us is that this is as dangerous as it could be. This is as dangerous as ever. They shouldn't be out traveling. It's the worst time of year to be out traveling on the open sea. They're very late in the sailing season, well into the danger zone. So they're going to be in trouble. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where there's, there's trouble brewing and you think someone needs to say something. Well, Paul says something. Paul takes some leadership and he says to them, verse 10, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage is going to end with you dying. There's a downer for you. I perceive the voyage will be with injury and much loss and you're going to lose your life. He's expressing fear. He's expressing apprehension. It would be a mistake to think that 
that he is giving some sort of prophetic insight from the Spirit here. This warning is not a prophetic insight from the Spirit. He's giving a common sense observation based on his experience. These are just Paul's thoughts here. I think we're all going to die. Now, he could also say, been there, done that. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us, verse 25, he says, I was three times beaten with rods, once stoned, three times shipwrecked, a night and a day adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, robbers, my own people, Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the country, danger at sea. So he kind of knew what he was talking about here. He's warning them. He's offering them advice. He spoke up. And no one listens to him. Nobody wants to hear what he has to say. He's a prisoner in charge of nothing and no one. Unimportant. Verse 11, Julius pays more attention to the pilot ship's owner than Paul. Merchant ship owners in those days usually acted as captain of their own ship. They're calling the shots. They own the thing. Verse 12, they find out the harbor is not suitable to spend the winter. So the majority decides against Paul to put out to sea. They hope to reach Phoenix. You look at the map, it's not that far away. They're just going to go under the, 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 the uh, shelter of Crete and get to this harbor, this haven, and they're going to spend the winter there. Paul's leadership is rejected. They don't want to do what he says. They don't listen. Everyone disagrees with him. They decide to pass on his advice and press on. And they would soon greatly regret this decision. They're going to realize Paul's advice was right. They should have listened. But isn't it easy? You look at, think of your own life. Isn't it easy sometimes to take the easy route and realize that was the toughest route? The crew didn't listen, and they end up losing all the cargo and all their profits. This is the grain ship. I'm sure they're thinking, if only we had listened. Now let's move on to verses 13 to 26, from Crete to Malta. Verse 13, the south wind blows gently. So they're thinking, free sailing here, we're good, smooth sailing, we're successful. They don't have to listen to Paul. We're going to weigh anchor and just sail along Crete close to the shore. We're, we're, we got it made. Then verse 14 happens. Before long, the disaster that Paul had predicted strikes. Winds roar down from Mount Ida on Crete, a tempestuous wind called a northeaster. It is powerful, it is dangerous, it's dreaded by all who sail the Mediterranean. Violent east-northwest wind, howling wind. Luke calls it a typhonikos. It's where we get our word typhoon. Sailors named it Eurokilo. In 1555, it caused waves that drowned 600 people in the city of Valletta, which was the main port city on the island of Malta. It's a dangerous, dangerous wind. Tempestuous refers to the swirling, whirling motions of clouds and sea caused by opposite currents of air coming together like in a typhoon. And so in verse 15, it tells us the ship is caught. It can't do what it's supposed to do. It can't sail correctly. It cannot face the wind and go. And so they literally give way to it and get driven along out of control. Can you imagine being on a ship with no rudder? By the way, you, you say, well, couldn't they turn the engines on? No, they're sailing. This is first century. They're sailing in a wooden boat. And they're out of control, pushed by the wind. Verse 16 tells us they run under the shelter of a small island called Cauda. It's like the last 
defense, 23 miles southwest of Crete, uh, a brief respite from a fierce storm at southernmost Greek island, and, and they're there, and they manage with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. This is the lifeboat, this is the tender, which would usually be towed behind the ship just like we would do today. They would take it on board during bad weather, must have been filled up with water, and would have been hard to lift into the boat and hoist into the boat. You notice that, that Luke says, we, with difficulty, managed to secure the boat? Have you noticed how social distinctions just disappear when you're fighting for your life? Have you noticed that when, when times get tough, people aren't worried so much about what position they've got? They just want to live. This is what's going on here. So verse 17, they hoist it up, and then they use supports to undergird the ship. They're literally wrapping the hole with cables to help it not burst, because what does grain do when it gets wet? It expands. It's going to burst the hole of the ship. And so I, I can't even picture what this might have looked like. I haven't been on a cruise, and there's a reason, okay? Storms out at sea and things like this, okay? I know I'm over my fear of flying, but, you know... I even got, man, I've got family members who say, we'll send you on a cruise. I'm good. But I think of The Perfect Storm, that movie, The Perfect Storm, right? And just storm all over the place. Makes you queasy just thinking about it, doesn't it? They're wrapping the holes with cables, trying to help it withstand this severe pounding of wind and sea. And then, on top of all that, they're afraid they're going to run aground on the Sirtis. What's that? There's a dreaded graveyard of ships on the North African coast. Lots and lots of shipwrecks there. So they lower the gear and they're driven along. They got the anchor out <clears throat> and it's, it's going to just drag behind the ship like a parachute. Trying to slow it down, trying to put on the brakes a little bit, slow the ship's momentum. But verse 18 says they were violently storm-tossed. Picture a big monster picking up the ship and then throwing it back down on the water. That's the idea. They're in the eye of the hurricane. They're in the eye of the typhoon. And, and it's violent. It's violent. Picture this. Uh, the, sea has a sea, the ship has a sea anchor dragging behind it. The waves are moving faster than the ship. The stern's rising steeply in the air as the wave goes underneath and pitching upward and the stern drops down and the wave moves forward and they're just going up and down and rising and falling. The wind is rocking it from side to side simultaneously. So you've got it going up and down and back and forth and can you say seasick? I'm getting queasy just thinking about it. Imagine trying to sleep or eat or try to you know, have any kind of hope in a situation like this. Not going to happen. So the next day they start jettisoning the cargo. They're throwing the, the grain overboard. Third day in, verse 19, they throw the tackle overboard. They're, they're getting rid of everything. And then verse 20, the ultimate happens. No sun or stars for many days. They couldn't see a thing. It was impossible to navigate. Difficult to stand, let alone walk. I remember being on a missions trip in 1998, I believe, in Estonia, uh, the Baltic states, and my friend Jim, who was a missionary there, said people got really depressed in the summertime, which was their winter, because it was so dark all day long, no sunlight. People just get depressed, and here they have no stars, no sun, there's nothing, they can't see anything. 
My uncle Everett just died a week ago. I officiated his funeral in San Diego on Friday. He was a career naval officer, and I had the privilege of seeing some of the letters he wrote to my Auntie Pearl and his sons, uh, John and Tom, my cousins, while he was at sea. Here's an excerpt of one letter he wrote. January 11th, 1969, 12 noon, USS McCormick. Dear Pearl and boys, yesterday it got fairly rough, but not too bad, and you should have seen the people that were seasick. Gray was gray. Gray, G-R-A-Y, a shipmate was G-R-E-Y. He says if it really gets rough, the ship is really going to be a mess. You go back to Luke and Paul and Aristarchus and others, and they've got salt spray just pounding in their face, driven by the stinging rain, the blinding them who are on deck, and worst of all, they're thinking about their impending death. They're all going to die by drowning, or sharks will get them. And so Luke says, all hope of our being rescued was abandoned. In their mind, they're done. All hope of our being saved, that means being rescued from death. All of that hope, any you know, sliver of, of hope they had was gone. They gave up. And Luke ends his depiction of this severe storm um, that led them to give up with a speech that Paul gives in verses 21 to 26. Before he gets to the recounting of the shipwreck at Malta, verses 27 to 44, we'll look at that next week, before he does that, he, he gives the account of what Paul stands up and says to everyone. And it's significant. It's here that we see some very clear truths. We see the secret of surviving, and not just surviving, but thriving in Christ. How our hope remains no matter what problems come our way. And the reason why? Because God's power and faithfulness are on display. God's power and faithfulness are on display. And I want you to notice with me, Three things that God always does by his power and by his faithfulness. And the first is this. God always leads us. He always leads us and empowers us to represent him well. You can be assured of God's leading. If you're a believer, you can be assured that he will lead you. And in the moment that you need to stand up, he will empower you. Verse 21, they're without food for a long time. So lack of appetite. Anxiety, seasickness, impossibility of cooking, all those things. And Paul stands up. He takes leadership. And he says, you should have listened to me, people. It feels like he's adding insult to injury, doesn't it? You should have listened to me? They're about to die. You should have listened to me and not left Crete, incurring this injury and loss. They're probably below deck at this point. He's reminding them that he warned them previously to stay put. They should have listened. They already knew that. What you need to know is he's not being a smart aleck and saying, oh, I have to be right, I need to get this point in first. Before I help you, I need to tell you. What he is doing is establishing credibility. This was a common part of speeches back then. Establishing the point that here, you need to listen to me. I have credibility. Another thing you need to realize is that Paul is not Jesus. Paul did not stand up and calm the storm. And if you look over in verse 27, you'll notice that this storm lasted 14 days. So whatever he says to them now has to last them 14 days. We want things instant, don't we? We want instant rescue. We want the airlift out now. We want to be rescued on our timetable. And they had to wait 14 days for these words to come true. Just keep that in mind. So he says in verse 
22, what God had given him to inspire them to hope. Here is Paul, who isn't Jesus, who doesn't stand up and calm the storm, but he is a servant of God concerned about those who are with him. And he is a servant of God who receives word from God to inspire them with hope. And so he says in verse 22, I urge you. He's strongly speaking. Now remember, the ship didn't go on pause and stop rocking back and forth and side to side. The storm did not stop. The storm is going. I urge you, take heart. Regain your composure. Be confident. Take heart. You're not going to die. The ship will be gone. That's it. You're not going to die this day in this storm. The ship's going to be lost. Because due to God's intervention, he's in a position now to assure them of their survival. They don't care about the ship at this point. They just care about living. You know how when you get to that point where you're on the brink of life or death, you really don't care about all the things that you're always so worried about every day? This is how they were right then. And what we see here is that God helps us boldly lead in time of trouble. Paul stood up, and this time they listened. The second thing I want you to see is that God always delivers us and sometimes, maybe even often, rescues us from danger, but not always. He always delivers us, ultimately, and often rescues us from danger. If you're here today, and you are, your heart is beating, your lungs are filled with air, you are alive for the purposes of God. Which means that he has already delivered you and rescued you from, very, from many, many dangerous situations. But that might not last. You might not be, da- be rescued from the next dangerous situation. That's the point here. God always delivers and often rescues us from danger, but not always. Verse 23, this very night, Paul says, this very night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, whom I serve, he's clarifying for the benefit of the pagan passengers who would have known he was a Jew. He says, I am the property of, I belong to, and I am the servant of, I I worship, I serve, the one true God. He makes it very clear. They would have been calling upon their pagan deities for days upon end, and now they've stopped doing even that because they've despaired of all help. And he wants to make it very clear he has received the assurance he's going to give them from the one true God. He says in verse 24, do not, this is what was said to me, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. God will rescue all who sail with you. So God didn't just say, you're going to be saved, but everyone with you is also going to be saved. God tells him, do not be afraid. How often does God say that to us in the word? Do not fear. Do not fear. God says it over and over again. Don't fear. God tells his people over and over again, don't be afraid. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. I am, I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you. I'm your God. I will will help you. I will surely uphold you with my righteous right hand. So God tells Paul something he tells us very often in Scripture. Don't fear. Don't be afraid. And and you're going to live. And not only that, you're going to stand trial before the emperor in Rome. And not only that, I'm going to graciously give you all of those on board ship with you. Here we are in the face of human need and inability. They're trying and trying, and they're finally just losing all hope, and they're letting it go, and God providentially inserts his promises 
into the vacuum and reassures Paul and gives him something to bless others with. Because ours is a fact-based hope. Ours is a fact-based hope. Christians don't always survive danger, but are always delivered by God one way or another. And Jonah had a bit of an overboard adventure, did he not? Job learned reverence and obedience by the things he suffered. Peter jailed, then released by an angel of God, supernaturally unlocking prison doors. Paul and Silas set free by an earthquake sent by God. John the Baptist wasn't so fortunate. Decapitated, served up on a platter to a pagan king. Stephen, faithful unto death, received the crown of life. And by the, name, by the way, his name means crown. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. We look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Because the things which are seen are temporary. The things that are not seen are eternal. There's that perspective. Christians are not always saved from danger, but they're always delivered by God ultimately. God always leads us, and he always delivers. And, and I want to give you a third one. He always reassures us via his word, via his inspired, inerrant, infallible promises. Look at verse 25. God always reassures us by his word. Paul says, take heart, men, so be confident. He's basically saying, I believe that God will be true to his word. Every Christian should be able to give that testimony because you have seen God be true to his word. How many times have you seen God be true to his word? to be faithful to what he said he will do. Paul commands them, be confident. I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Exactly to the point, to the word. He has faith in the promises of God. He has hope built on the sure promises of God, not, not wishful thinking. Do you realize that if Paul's words weren't true, they would be like a five-second interlude before sudden death. And if they died, it would have been an empty comfort but Paul confidently encourages those on board because he believed what God says. He gave them God's word. They have, he's telling them, you have God's protection. I don't know if you remember back when you were an unbeliever. If, if, you, if you became a believer at a young age, kids, just praise God. For those of us that became believers, maybe as adults, I will say this. Do you remember back when you were not a believer and how you didn't give one, one thought to the mercy and grace of God? Unbelievers would be shocked if they could realize how much they owe to the mercy of God and how much they owe to Christians who were among them. Hope we have in Christ is an anchor for our soul. It's a, it's a hope both firm and steadfast. It is immovable because God's promises are true and his word can be trusted. I'm up here every week by the grace of God telling you that same thing. And I will do it until my dying breath, as God gives me strength. You see, my words can help you. God can give me some words that may help you. But only God's word can heal you and save you and sanctify you and secure you forever. 
The Holy Spirit uses the word of God in the lives of the people of God for the glory of God. And you can't say, I want God, but I don't want his word because you cannot separate the two. We have Jesus' word on it. Jesus, the living word. Jesus, the incarnate word, said, John 17, 17, thy word is truth. So God uses gospel truth to refresh our souls, to revive our souls, to to remind us, and, and he shines the spotlight of the Spirit on his holy word. He illuminates our hearts by his presence and his power, and, and, and we can fix our eyes on Jesus without shame or fear. If you are a believer, you're, you're covered by the blood of Christ. You've been forgiven. You've been accepted. You are beloved. And you're being kept by the power of God. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.29, you are in Christ by God's doing. You are kept in Christ by God's doing as well. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. He takes us from start to finish. And Paul is, is standing up and he's telling these people that were about to die, you're going to live. And you're going to live because God Almighty told me so. Remember the kids' song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so? Shouldn't make fun of that song. The Bible tells us everything we need to know about God. You're not getting new revelation from God. You're getting the the solid foundation, the bedrock truth of the word of God. All 66 books. And guess what? They're all pointing to one pinnacle truth of the cross of Christ that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose from the dead on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared and that he is returning. If you're not a believer today, you need that truth. You need to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. You need to know the love of God, the forgiveness of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God. And believers, you remain in Christ by his doing, and you abide in Christ by his word. Abide in his word. Go on to verse 26. Last verse we'll look at today. It ends with a prediction. Paul says, just really simply, the ship's gonna run aground on an island. I love that. Chapter 28, verse one tells us it's Malta. We kind of knew that. We can read it ahead of time. He just tells them we're gonna run aground on an island. Now remember, they got 14 days of travel still. Crazy travel. I'm gonna die any moment kind of travel. And now the stage is set for a dramatic you know, conclusion to this dangerous voyage, ultimate shipwreck, and the fulfilling of God's promises, and we're gonna just leave it there. Well, we can wait a week. They can wait 14 days, we can wait a week. Because God always leads us. He gives us strength to lead when called upon. You are strong in Christ in the strength of his might, and you'll have strength you didn't know you had until the moment comes, and God gives it to you. I hope you have testimonies of that, that you know that. You know how many times you've been in a situation you said, I cannot do this. And God gives you the ability. God always delivers us, often rescues us from danger. You are securing Christ, believer. You are securing Christ forever. And God always reassures us with his word, the sure word of Christ. 
This is what Luke is emphasizing, the power of God and the faithfulness of God at work in a world of dangerous natural and human forces. You ever been t- through a time in your life when you seem to lo- lose all hope? Can you remember a time in your life when you felt like you, you lost all hope? You felt like the struggle that you were going through was going to sink you? That you lost all hope of rescue? That you wondered where God was? Have you ever done that? Have you said, where are you, God? I want to say this as kindly as I can. You only say, where are you, God, when your perspective is wrong. When you're focused on yourself as the epicenter of life. In reality, God is unfathomably big, and you are infinitesimally small. You're like the Whoville dust speck. You're like a vapor, James says. Your life's like a vapor, like steam rising from a cup of coffee. It's there for a moment, and poof, it's gone. And at the very same time, in all of our smallness, and all of God's bigness, you are immensely cared for. You are extremely loved. You are absolutely cherished. God is pleased with his people. You, you are sustained by him. You're made by him. He loves you. And you can play the if-only game if you want. Or you can lean into biblical truth. One of them will capture your heart like a magnet. So you did something God told you not to do. If only I wouldn't have. You went somewhere God told you not to go. If only I hadn't gone. If only you'd listened to God. If only you'd obey God. If only you had listened to and obeyed God's word. And you can wallow in that if you want. You can take the low road You can despair, or you can trust in Jesus and confess your sins and walk in victory and forgiveness. But in order to do that, faith is required. The kind of faith that led Paul by the Holy Spirit to say in Romans 8, starting at verse 31, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things, graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died, more than that was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is also interceding for us. He's praying for you right now. Right this very moment. As you hear my words, right this very moment. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it's written. For your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Paul says no. No. My favorite no in the whole Bible. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure Paul says, I am convinced of this. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul wrote those words before this storm. He said, you know, there's nothing to come. 
that can separate me from the love of God in Christ. There's nothing to come in your life, Christian, that can separate you from the love of God in Christ. Because Paul's heart and life was surrendered to Christ and everything was reordered under that priority, how it should be in our life. I mean, you go through things, right? You've, you've seen things, you've, you've done things, you've learned lessons. Sometimes survival seems like a dim possibility. You look at Paul's life, you do not see, well, I just survived that by the, by the skin of my teeth. No, he was thriving in Christ. Setbacks, challenges, paled in comparison to his hope in Christ. At the end of the day, we all want to know there's hope, and I'm here to tell you today there is hope only in Jesus Christ. Set your hope on him. He has given us his sure word. We have Jesus' word on it, and, and his word is truth, and we have no hope apart from Jesus and the living and abiding word of God. And the hope we have in Christ is an anchor for our soul. It holds you. It never lets you go. When you feel like you're slipping and you're sinking, it doesn't let you go. And your life, as hard as it is to hear this, your life may suddenly, not unexpectedly, be threatened by forces you cannot control. And you may not survive opposition and persecution. The apostles were beaten. Stephen and James were killed. Christians do not always survive storms and shipwrecks and snake bites. But you can rest in fact we can rest in the fact that God is in control over all things. He is sovereign. And the reality with which you reckon your life, knowing God will surely fulfill his purposes, and he will either rescue you from life-threatening situations, or he will give you the ability to persevere through the trial, or he will give you the, the ability to be courageous in the face of death. No matter what happens in your life, you can trust that Jesus has it under control, assured that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. God is faithful to his word. God fulfills his promises. He promised Paul that he would reach Rome. It's restated three times in the book of Acts. God does not always promise rescue and survival in dangerous situations, but he always fulfills his promises. Jesus said, don't fear the one who kills the body Fear God who has authority to put someone in hell. Fear the judge, not the opponents of the gospel who have no real authority. The point here is that you do not need to worry about how exactly God is going to care for you. He knows the needs of sparrows. He knows what you need. Jesus said, in this world you have tribulation, but be of good cheer. It's like Paul told him, be courageous, be of good cheer. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. I have done something that will ultimately make all things right, and you might not see the effects until later, but you will see the effects because that's where our hope comes in. As I close, let me just say this. Before I preach, I always ask this question. How has this passage of Scripture affected my life? How has it changed me? Someone's going to ask you today, what would you get out of the sermon? What would you get out of the sermon? I'm laying in bed this morning, seriously, before I, I rose up, and I remember thinking to myself, so what is it about this passage that God has marked me by this week? And, and it came to me very quickly. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Trust, 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 trust. Now, I realize something. 
that we very easily apply a consumer mindset to the Bible. We think we need something new. And God gives us the same lessons over and over and over again. And throughout all 66 books of the Bible, we get the same lessons over and over and over again. And the biggest ones are, trust him and obey him. Trust that he is faithful. Trust that he keeps his word. God seeks what has been passed by. You don't get the lesson the first time, he'll bring it again. We're not working on it here, folks. God is working on us. He wants to renew us. But aren't we in love with the cult of something new? Teach me something new. Give me a new toy. If your kid told you, if your child tells you, Mommy, Daddy, give me a new toy. Like every day or every week, you're going to say, go to the toy bin and get something at the bottom of the pile. That'll be new for you today. You haven't looked at it in a while. They can give them a new toy every day. They can discover something old is new again, though. You experience the same truth with the wisdom of years. Think about this. Preaching is a ministry of reminding. We hear and we rehear. We learn and relearn the same truths over and over again, and we enjoy them with Jesus, who is always with us. He makes old truths fresh and new day by day. And you know why? Because he doesn't change. You change as you trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't change, and thank you, Lord, that we do change as, you, as we trust in you. And Lord, thank you for your grace, thank you for your mercy, and thank you, Lord, that no matter what problems come our way, our hope in Christ remains because we rest in your promises. And we thank you, Lord, that your promises are true. We thank you, Lord, that they are sure. We pray in Christ's name, amen.